Thank you. Well, it is a joy for us to be here with you this morning. And first of all, we bring you greetings from Vince McCarty and Michelle Wanat and the Department of Global Missions of Open Bible Churches to thank you as a church for what you do for missions. Because if you didn't pray and if you didn't give, we couldn't go where God has called us to go. And we couldn't minister to the people that God has called us to minister to. And so for that, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But as we go around to the churches, we like to give y'all just a wee flavor of what our culture is like. So that's why we dress the way we do. So you can pick out the missionaries real quick. And <clears throat> Tom and I are both wearing what are called grand boo-boos. Guaranteed one size fits all. And Tom's is made out of a hand-woven cloth. It's called lepi cloth. It's an indigo tie-dye. The indigo plant grows in the highlands of Guinea. And all of our men have boo-boos like this that they would always wear to special occasions, and especially to the mosques when they go on Fridays. Mine is something that I would wear like to a wedding, but all of our women always that are married will always tie something on their head. It's called a foular, and it can be tied a hundred different ways depending on the size of the material. But anyway, just to give you all just a little background on us, um, I was, my parents were missionaries with Open Bible for 27 years in Liberia, and I was born there and spent 14 years as a young person growing up. And Tom's folks were in the Republic of Guinea, two countries up where we are now, for 15 years, and he went out there with his folks when he was five years old. Well, when I was nine, my mom and dad decided to send my two sisters and I away to a missionary boarding school in the Republic of Guinea where Tom and his folks were at. So I met him a few years back when I was about 10 and he was about 16. And when we came back to the States to finish our education, God brought us together and we pastored churches and taught school for 13 years and had four boys before we returned to Guinea in 1987. And when we got ready to go, we chose to travel as a family because, you see, we strongly believe that the call of God in ministry is not just for the man, it is not just for the woman, but it involves the whole family. And so we traveled with our kids starting in 1986, and they sang in every church. And, you know, a few years have passed since then. They were like two and three, I mean, three and four and nine and ten when we took them to Africa. They are now 30, 31, 36 next week, and 37. We've collected three daughters, and we have one beautiful grandson, Isaac Thomas, who's ten and a half months old. But the greatest gift our kids have given us is that they all love Jesus with all their hearts. And they are serving him in the mission fields where he has placed them here in the United States. Two of them in the Eugene Springfield area and two of them right up here in Sacramento. And so for that, we are most grateful. So Tom's going to come and share a few things and then I will be back. It is a joy to be here. Uh, You know, it's our last service in Northern California. It's been really dry until now. I'm, you know, we brought rain to you. We're from the tropics. And, you know, yeah. well, I don't know if I can claim that. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for all you do. has something about the change of the winds, I suppose. And this is an occasion that the Lord has given us, and so we have this little thing I wanted to show you. Because a lot of people don't know how large Africa is. So I, I the mass, this is, a, and so if you kind of look, the brown up here, that's the United States that sits in the continent of Africa. Uh, the red here, or dark orange, is China. You had to cut it a little bit, put it together. It also fits in the whole area of Africa. And the yellow down here is Japan. You have India that fits on the corn over on the east side. You have Eastern Europe. You have Italy. You have France, Germany, and, and uh, uh, what's the other one there? Spain. 
and all the other countries of Europe fit inside the continent of Africa. Huge. So when you ask me if I know a pastor, a missionary, in uh, <laughs> Uganda. Now, Uganda have malls. We don't have malls. We're lucky to get six hours of electricity in the capital city every evening. And, uh, but they had those explosions, you know, the terrorists that came. And we do work in a country that's over 90% Muslim. And the Lord has put us there all these years. And, you know, there, we have an open country right now just to preach the gospel. It's getting more difficult. Uh, the tide of time, it seems to be switching a little bit. But we still have the freedom. And young people can uh, easily come to our services because uh, of the tribes where we are are not so fanatically Muslim. And so we have... A large percentage of our church is first-generation Christians. We have a young church, and the Lord has been blessing us and blessing us. When we went back in 1987, we had five families that had been in Guinea earlier, way back in the 60s and 70s, and the, the dictator president sent them all out. So we started out with 10 Christians. Today, the Lord has given us two to 3,000 and you know, it's not because we're great missionaries. That's the work of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. The thing is, we have to be faithful to the call that God has placed on our hearts. And it's exciting. We have a great story to share. And you know, uh, Muslims just don't come up to you and say, Oh, please, please tell me about Jesus. Now, do they do that here? You know, please, please, you know, feed me some <laughs> your wonderful food you had last night. You know, that might happen. People have lost, but people don't come up and ask you about Jesus. So how do you reach people for Jesus? And we have found there's a window of opportunity. And one of the things we did, we showed the film Jesus in our first years. We went to villages where they hadn't seen a white person for, for 30, 30, 40 years. And we showed the film out there. No electricity, you know, there's nothing else to do. There's no TV programs, no football to watch, no nothing, you know. Nowhere to go down and gather, and a lot of mosquitoes and things. And we showed the film Jesus in the earlier years. They didn't all convert because of the film Jesus. Some saw film for the first time when we went with our generator and our stuff and set up our... our projector and with a screen that you could see from both sides we'd have anywhere from 500 to 8,000 people watching every time we would show that but it opened the doors of questions and a lot of Muslims you know they have their five pillars of faith they have their things of Islam that they follow but they don't have the satisfaction always in knowing if that's really the way they hope it is because that's their forefathers way and you know it's exciting because through the film Jesus, we had people coming and asking. And it's through the word, reading with them, that people came to the Lord. And so of our 14 to 18 pastors that we have, uh, most of them came out of Islam. And, and they accepted Christ as Savior. And today, they are working there while we're here. Because we always believe the training of the pastors is essential as well in the, those that are in leadership and ministry. You have to, after they convert, have a time of discipling and a time of teaching always. Another way, those windows of opportunities that we have are so few. And that is the time you have to plant the seed. And so uh, the first term, they were there just first year, a neighbor man 
he was a military, and his mother-in-law died. And so we don't have morgues in Guinea. Uh, our morgue is a freezer room at the hospitals that are there, and that is they, they have the electricity for the bodies to, to really be able to freeze. And that's a problem, and so most of the time they bury their dead the same day that they die, or the next day if they die during the night. And this man came to me, he didn't have a way to take his mother-in-law's body to the village. And so, exactly, you know, we prayed about it, it was risky, but we loaded the coffin up on our old pickup that we had at that time, and we drove that village, to the village of Mari, and as we came into town, the outskirts, you know, the mud huts with the thatched roof, you could hear the ladies and all come out and start to wail and to cry, knowing that this one that they all loved had died. And as we got to the center of the village, we had about 800 people that gathered around. And the ladies that were in the huts over there were just wailing. You know what it's, the reaction you have when you hear people wailing? It's very moving, especially a people that have no hope, that it's, you know, a final farewell. And, you know, it is a moving thing. And I have learned if we're going to reach people for Jesus, it has to be in those windows of need on the part of other people. And that means that we have to be available even if it's not convenient. Later on, we had a few YWAM teams that we invited, and they came, some from Southern Cal even, a couple teams from there. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they, one of them stayed in this village. One young man accepted the Lord, came out of Islam, left his whole family, who was Muslim. And he got married and had three children. He developed a, a heart problem. We sent him to the capital city. We prayed over him, believed God. God didn't heal him. We sent him to some of the specialists, and he died there. And this is just a, shows my red, red Land Rover. And on top, we brought his body back to the village a few years ago. And there were, we had 3,000 that had come and gathered to see how the Christians buried. And our, one of our leader, uh, Joseph Kamara, is the president of our churches over there. And he preached a fantastic sermon because he, too, came out of Islam. And what God means in our lives and the hope that we have. It was astounding to see so many of the men and the women of that village that were moved as he preached that wonderful sermon. You know, I didn't come out of Islam. I came from a good Christian family. And I had grandparents that loved the Lord. And they've always prayed for me. Can you imagine the multitudes that have come to the Lord and they have no parent and no grandparent that knows Jesus? And the burden that comes on their heart to reach their families for the Lord. It's exciting to see what God is doing if we will be faithful and be the instruments that God wants us to be. So now Sherry's going to share with a lot of activities that's happening, so you have an up-to-date how God's moving. Hallelujah. Okay, if you can start the PowerPoint, please. <laughs> this church invested in Guinea many, many years ago. And so it's a real joy for us to be able to share what God is doing there right now. Okay, first picture, please. All right, we have had the privilege over the years that we have been in Guinea of hosting five Men of Vision Evangelized teams. Now, Men of Vision Evangelize is a group of guys predominantly from open Bible churches, but not totally. And they choose one country around the world every year to go and to build a church. And right now they are in Brazil. But the first year time when they came in 1990, they built the second 
Protestant church building in the whole capital city of Conakry of over a million people. Then they came in 94. They came in 2005, 2009. And then last year, we hosted the largest team we've ever had. 40 guys came, and uh, they built a church in the village of Mari that had opened up to us because Tom hauled two dead bodies there. But where are the guys? Um, okay, can we go back to the other one just a second, please? Thank you. Where the guys are standing right there is actually in our compound in the capital city. In the capital city, we live inside of 12-foot high cement block walls with rebar spikes on the top. That's a double steel gate that's behind there. And inside that gate on the right side, there's a door cut and then a peephole cut, and it also has rebar on it. If somebody comes and knocks on the door, you will look out that peephole first and see who they are before you open the door. Because, you see, Guinea is a politically unstable country, and all hell can literally break, break loose at any time. There are 20-some different tribes there, and a lot of times there are tribalism that comes in. You know, tribes um, go back and forth with each other. But when politics enters in, then it becomes deadly. And in June, right before we were getting to come home for furlough, they were getting ready for their parliamentary elections. And three years prior, they had had their first Democratic presidential elections, and the, tri the guy who was in the tribe that got in, the ones who lost felt that their guy should have got in, you know, and it wasn't right. And so they became, came and they started to have demonstrations in the street and they turned deadly. And uh, there were 15 people killed, not four blocks from us, okay, right before we left. And when that happens, then the government sends out the military with their AK-47s. And they go down through the neighborhoods just on the other side of that fence and they just go pop, 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 and shoot their guns up in the air trying to discourage people from going out so that they will not have more fatalities. But because people have prayed God has kept us over all these years. Next, this is the church that the men built in 12 days in the village of Mare. And uh, this church was finished faster than any other moved church we've ever had before we came home in June. This church was completely stuccoed. Next, it was completely painted inside and out. Next, and the guys even built furniture, benches for the church people. And uh, one of the guys was a carpenter and he took some of the scaffolding planks and he sanded them down and he built a beautiful pulpit. They stained it with red palm oil, which is native to that village. And then all the guys signed their names in before they turned it over to the church. Next, well, after they had the church built, man, the pastor came to us and he said, Pastor Tom, before you leave, we really want to have a baptismal service because we really want to go forward for the Lord. And you know, he said, we have 12 people who want to be baptized. Now, the only problem was it's the end of our dry season. We only have two seasons, a rainy season and a dry season. The rains start a little bit at the end of May. Uh, in June, you might have some occasionally at night. July and August, it can rain almost every day nonstop. And then September, it dies down. For seven months, you hardly have any rain. So where were we going to find a water hole to baptize these people in? So we had 23 people on next and in next our vehicle as we drove down the road, okay, to try to find a water hole. Next. And this is what we found. Does not this look inviting? Oh my goodness. It's usually a flowing stream, but you know, it was now a stagnant pond. And the pastor in the red standing there is the pastor of the brand new church. The one next to him is Pastor Joseph Kammerer, our president of our churches out there. And Pastor Joseph waded out into that water a little bit. He looked down and he waded back out. And before they proceeded, he extended his hand and he said, in the name of Jesus, I bind all you microorganisms and anything else evil that might be in this water that tried to hurt us because we're here to do the work of the Lord. Then they went in and continued with their baptismal service. And we used four pastors because the water was only knee deep next. And so they had to two on each side, you know, to dunk the people all the way down next. 
This young man's name is Jacob, and Jacob was so excited to be following Jesus in water baptism. Next, this is his younger brother, Stephan, and Stephan's 14, and he was glad to show people that he had made a choice to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. Next, oh, this is Bazik. He was six foot two. He had to get down on his knees to be baptized, <laughs> but he was so happy because he and his wife were baptized on the same day. Next, and this is the group of the people that were baptized, and the lady in the white in the second row is the widow of the man that uh, Tom carried his coffin up to the village on the top of our red Land Rover. The little boy in the blue and red on the front is her oldest child, her son, and they were be able to be baptized the same day. But out of the 12 people, eight of them came from the Bible camps that we started having back in 2010. Next, we started having Bible camps. We wanted to train our in-house kids because we all know that it's our kids of the future church of tomorrow. And so we started having camps. We can only have them every two years because they're very expensive. We have to pay the transportation for most of the kids to be able to come. The first camp, we had uh, 130 kids that came. And in 2012, we had 200 that came. We had three classes, 9 to 13, 14 to 17, and then 18 to 21. And after the first camp, we had young people that said, Oh, madame, can't you extend the age a little bit longer? Because we've never been able to be a part of a camp like that. And we really want to participate. So now our older class goes from 18 all all the way up to 26. We hold our camps in our schools. We have three schools up and running that are part of a self-help program for our pastors out there. We have two preschools that are being registered this uh, last year to start this coming fall. Here I was teaching Bible lessons. Everything's done in French to the 9 to 13 year old class, but as we do with our training, there were pastors in that class with me who will take over teaching that class this year so I can go on and do other things. Next. The kids just sit at these little benches, okay? Usually there's four to five kids that sit at one of these benches in our schools. It's all rote learning. There are no books, and the teachers write everything on the board, and the kids have to copy it down, memorize, and then come back and take their exams. Next. One of the things that we deal with a lot in our Bible camps is Bible verse memorization, because one day we will all be without a Bible, and we will want to share our faith with somebody. And it's the word of God that we have hidden in our hearts that we will be able to draw from to share our faith. And so our, here our kids are reciting Bible verses to Pastor Peter. Next. And oh, we always have crafts. I'm a crafter. And our kids always love to do crafts. And here, Pastor Jacob is helping us make some little banners next. And this was in our little class. And the banner says, Je crois en Jésus. I believe in Jesus. But the kids were so excited because they got to use gold glitter. They were sparkling from head to toe. And they were so excited to have these banners take home with them next. This was our 14 to 17-year-old class. And in our last Bible camp, our second son, Mike, came out and helped to teach this class. But pastors were in that class with him. And they will be taking over teaching the class this year. Next. And always when we have our Bible camps, we work with puppetry and also mimes. The young man in the yellow that is standing there at the right side, his name is Pierre Boya Bangura. He's one of our first generation Christians. He's gone all the way through university and he started his own little recording studio. So he now makes up our puppet plays and mimes and puts them to music. And we are very thankful for Pierre and his ministry in our churches out there. Next. This is the big class. So we had 100 young people in our 18 to 26-year-old class. And these two young ladies made a decision that when they went home after this camp, they were going to become more involved in their church. Next. 
at the end of our camps, we always give out participation certificates so that, you know, the kids can go back and they can show their friends, they can show their family what they had been a part of for a whole week, and they gave them an opportunity to share what they had learned next. But the greatest joy of our heart was on Friday night after the camp, there were 74 young people and kids that came and knelt down on the cement floor in front of the altar, either giving their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ or rededicating their lives to him. Now, remember, I said this is our in-house kids, but I think we all know that just because kids, young people come to church does not mean they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Next. And so Tom and the pastors gathered around him and they prayed that this would not just be a one night experience, but that they would take this home and that they would continue to go forward and change their generation for Jesus in Guinea. Next. Over the years that we have been in Guinea, we asked for other missionaries to come and nobody else came. So we realized, you know, God was going to raise up his own leadership in his church there. And so these are the men that he, of God that he has given us who are in leadership in the red jacket at the very end, Pastor Joseph Kamra. He's the president of the Open Bible Churches out there. In the middle, Pastor Maxim Bangora. He's our treasurer. Sitting by Tom, Pastor Sumaru. He's our secretary. And if we were never able to go back, these men of God would be able to carry on the vision and the work of the Lord in the Republic of Guinea. And for that, we are grateful. Next. When we are out in Guinea, we send out email newsletters. Snail mail does not work for us. If you do not get our email newsletters, which usually come about every four to six weeks and you would like to, we do have a book on the back table that you can put your email address in and we will get you on the list. And you see, the thing is that um, we I'm only supposed to write like one page. They say, you know, y'all won't read more than one page, but I can't do it. I've got to write two, but I do highlight. I put in bold, okay, the first sentence. So you can read the first sentence of the paragraph and decide then whether you want to read on or not. Because you see, we never solicit funds. What we're soliciting is your prayers. And how can you pray for somebody if you've never met them? Or if you know nothing about their story? And so this young woman, we've written about her for some years now and give updates. And we refer to her in the newsletters in abbreviated form. We just call her Had for her security purposes. But her real name is Hadiatu Diallo. And she's a beautiful 35-year-old young woman who's from the most fanatical Islamic tribe in Guinea. You see, her tribe believes that if someone leaves Islam to become a Christian, it's their sworn duty to kill them to redeem their soul. And when Hadiatu made the decision to follow Christ, her family came against her. They tried to kill her. But Hadiatu cannot be quiet about who Jesus is and what Jesus means to her. She lives in a section of the capital city. Her family does not know where she is. But God is using her to reach old people from her tribe. People that we could never reach in a lifetime. But because you send us, God lets us lead her to Jesus. And then she is able to reach others. So when you think about praying for us, when you think about praying for Hadiatu, or praying for the Muslims around the world. Remember that each one leaves Islam at a great personal sacrifice. But know that because you do pray and you do give, there's still Muslims coming to Jesus. God bless you. Now, why would anybody want to go to Africa? I'm sure maybe it's the great retirement plan, you think? Or the salary? Oh, I want to see what time it was. Okay. The Lord has been so good to us, and you know how I was called? My folks didn't ask me if I wanted to go. I was drafted. Of course, Sherry was born out there. And I hadn't a clue, except when we left, they sent us off, 
And I was four years old, went to France for a year, and there was this huge crowd from the churches in the Des Moines area, Iowa area, that sent us off. They had trumpets and all this, 200-plus people. And we got on, the, on the, uh, you know, the train and went off to New York. Well, now when you leave, you say farewell to everybody, make the last few phone calls, and you're on your way. But, you know, I didn't know why we were going. And we went away to boarding school every year. We were away from our parents nine months of the year. We could not see them, visit them, talk to them on the phone. Can you imagine never seeing your children for nine months? And so when we came home, it was honeymoon time. And that means that you can get away with murder. Your parents wouldn't spank you. Wouldn't, you know, they'd correct you, of course. But, you know, you wanted to please your parents. And so I had come home when I was eight years old for that, during that time, and Dad had wanted something across town. And our first term, we didn't have a car. Can you imagine a missionary without a car? And so I did the walk. I went, and God tried to get the thing for Dad. It took me over an hour to get across this huge town where we lived in town of Kindia. And there, uh, the store was closed, and my heart sunk, and I sat down, and I wandered around, and I waited. And somebody came by about an hour and a half later and said, oh, it's a Muslim holiday. No store, you have to come back tomorrow. So I started my journey back home, and I got to the center uh, where the marketplace, the marketplace is about five, six football fields, humongous place. It was filled with thousands and thousands of men. Their mats all lined up, and they were all praying towards the east. And I started into the crowd to try to cross through the path I knew. They gave me some evil eyes. My heart beat a whole lot. I backed out. I said, pardon, pardon, pardon. Got away, got around, and went all the way around to Dad and told him the story. Went to my room when I was eight years old in my bed. That morning, late morning, the Lord spoke to me and showed me why my parents had gone to Guinea. Thousands and thousands of thousands of men, and not one of them knew Jesus. Made an impact on me. It was later on when I was 16, came home, went to camp. And I discovered the camp, you know what camps are for, don't you? It's so the guys can go check out the girls, and the girls can go check out the guys. I figured that out, because I, I, I didn't know what to expect, you know. And uh, I went to this, it was a, at that time not the nice camps now with with wonderful plush beds and, you know, showers and that. It wasn't like that. It was really crude at the time back in the, in the oh, late 50s, <laughs> kind of long ago. And anyway, and I went there, and, uh, you know, that first night we had a great service, and the kids, you know, all the young people, everything was in English. Wow, things were doing great. You know, uh, the kids were all there active and singing and and then the sermon, and then we knelt at the altar, came down, prayed for about three or four minutes, and then we all got up and went to the snack shack, or whatever they call that now. And we had sodas, cold, ice cold. Can you imagine? You actually have ice. Hmm. We don't have ice, even now. Very rarely. And I think of that time, and how disappointed that first night when I went to bed because I had expected to hear from the Lord. Somehow in my mind, I thought God was going to speak to me at this camp. I thought that's what it was for. I was 16 years old that second night we went. And I asked before the leadership of the camp, the, the adults there, I said, can I pray? Would you let me pray as long as I need to pray until I hear from God? 
And that night, they said, of course, they said yes. And I prayed until 3 in the morning. A couple of buddies of mine, we didn't go to the snack shack. We didn't get anything to drink. We, didn't, we just prayed. And, you know, I broke my heart before the Lord that night. And the Lord spoke to me. And he told me that I was going to go into the ministry. And he put within my heart a great desire to see people come to Jesus. And I can't explain. Of course, we went back to Africa after that and all. But it was that early calling of those years that God put on my heart. And so when I go around now to the churches, I recognize that some of the eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds of the church is where we're going to go. They might have a call to reach people, and it's during those early years that they don't have all the other junk on their minds. And they're open to hear from the Holy Spirit what God might put on their hearts to do. And I want to encourage you to let your children have that personal experience. Seek God and hear from him. You know, when that call comes on you, as you get older, you recognize you don't have as much time as you used to. Now, I'm not exactly the spring chicken that you think I am. Uh, Because uh, I'm 65 years old. So, okay, I only have 20 years left of ministry way I figure it. And, uh, you know, when you get older, you realize you're not that old, but you don't have as much time. And we've been in Guinea now. Uh, We were here uh, almost 20 years ago. I think it was 1994. You gave two dresses or something to share you were making, if I remember what was said. And, you know, we remember a lot of things through the years, and there's only an opportunity given to us that we can share and this is an opportunity, and it might be our last time to be able to itinerate, go through the Pacific churches and all. And this is ordained of God, and I take it very seriously. And every sermon I preach, it says, if it's my last one. I don't know if I'll reach the second service today. But I'm going to share my heart the best I can, because this is the only opportunity that God has given me to do that. And I look at going back to Guinea, and every time I go back, it's just if it's the last term. But it starts out with the last day or the last year. And that puts an an urgency within our understanding. You know, I've had cruel things happen to me through the the years. My brother-in-law sent me a VCR tape of of a Super Bowl, since you're on Super Bowl. And I got, you know, we had to put it in there, and I was watching, and I never did know who won the game because the the tape went blink with a minute, 20-some seconds left as as the team was marching to, to win. I heard later on they won, but I didn't get to see it. And, you know, I, I'm an adult. I mean, I have four kids. You'd think it was a little bit, you know, why would he send me such a tape? And I ask him, you, you know, it's my brother-in-law. Maybe he's getting even for something. I don't know. But nevertheless, he thought it was the complete tape. And I found out, you know, as important that as is, it's not too important to me because I survived. And it didn't really matter in the end. What matters is that people come to Jesus. And so now, since I'm getting a little older... People have a tendency to say, well, when are you going to come home to stay? The grandkids are drawing you. You know, you know I, I love grandkids, I'm sure. I want a whole bunch more. I heard that once it starts, the flood comes, so I'm waiting for the flood. We have one. I have four sons, one seeking a wife still. 
But you know, the Lord is good, and he's going to give us the desires of our hearts. But God hasn't called me to quit. In fact, I don't believe in retirement. I don't believe it's scriptural. Maybe you'll change the way you minister or what you do. But the call of reaching lost people, you never can retire from that because you've heard from God. I've heard from God. And even if I had the most clever professors that would try to tell me that God did not exist, how could they ever make headway within my heart and life? Because I have tasted, I have seen, I have heard from him. That personal experience changes you and you are no longer the wishy-washy, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. We know without a shadow of a doubt. And when the Lord calls and the time we have, we are believing that all of Guinea is going to come to Jesus. You know, they say, no, it's not normal. There's always going to be heathens. Well, the Bible never said there's going to be always heathens. They say the poor will be with you. But he didn't say the, the heathens will always be with you. So I'm believing for everybody to get saved. Doesn't that sound great? But it takes time. And you know, it takes people that are faithful. And as I begin to seek and recognize that God's timing is involved, I come to realize my windows of opportunity are getting smaller. Smaller. A gallon of gas over there costs $6. Our banks go on strike. So if you're out of money, tough. Wait till the banks open and there's tellers. No plastic money. You got to wait for the money to be wired from the states. It might get there or might go to another Guinea. Guinea Equatorial did for three months. Couldn't get that month's check for three months once. So we never know. Nothing's sure. The thing that is sure is that the Lord never changes. And the call is just as important, if not more so now, than it's ever been. And therefore, our ministering to you is of urgency. Because this is the only time we have of sharing our heart and what God is doing. Because it's not honor and glory to us. It is honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. As I'm getting older, now, Pastor, you promised me this phone would tell me something. It is black. It's 10 to That doesn't tell me. He had a, down, a countdown going on. And, Pastor, I don't know the countdown. So I, I, you see, I like to be in obedience to leadership. And so just let me know when I have three minutes or so. So I... Okay. You see, this is America. If it was Guinea, do you think I would say that? We'd go another hour and a half, but we have another group coming. <laughs> it's the way it is. And, you know, I've tried to teach them a little discipline, and they don't always listen. I try them to start on time. They still start 30 minutes late. So if, the, if you start on time, you have music with half the group singing. And there we don't have the, the guitars. We, we have drums and gourds. And it's great, man. They really rock. The Lord's so good. But, I, the, you know, oftentimes we, we read scriptures and, uh, we, you know, we've read them so many times, but the Lord gave me a little something. And I'm going to paraphrase a lot and I'm going to run right through this. But I want you, uh, if you can, with a spouse to read the second, third, and fourth chapter of 1 Samuel three times between now 
and Valentine's Day. Okay, end of uh, forget Valentine's Day, end of, of February. And get out a little notebook and a pen and go verse by verse with your spouse and ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's something special for you. It might sound tedious, but let me tell you, it pays. It's good. It's sometimes great to do that. And as I was reading this scripture, uh, there's a story about, you know, Eli, he was the chief priest. And then you have his sons because Eli was getting older and I kind of fit into that group a little bit maybe. And then you've got the youngsters that are in their early 30s maybe or late 20s. And they're in leadership. And, you know, sacrificing has to be very physical and all the, the things about killing animals and all that. And so his son was helping him do the work in the temple, his sons. And then there's this little boy, Samuel, that's given. And he's just a lamb that can do all the gopher work, run here, do this, do all the things that nobody else wants to do. You ever feel like you're one of those? Well, anyway, uh, they're... they're he is. He's never heard the voice of God. And as I look at this story in the second chapter, which I'm not going to read anything there, uh, the story tells us that uh, the two sons of Eli were sinful. One, they did not like their salary. They did not like the way they received constant, uh, uh, the, the funds that they were going to get. They, they used to use a prong to reach into the boiling meat. and that, The meat that came out was theirs to help feed their family or to help feed them. And they wanted roast meat. And they said, even if you don't roast it for us and allow us that way, we're going to just take it. So in their hearts, they were kind of like thieves. And the word also tells us that they did sexual immoral acts within the, the doors of the temple of God. And there is the father, Eli, and never, never says anything about the mother, so I assume the mother has passed away. But anyway, he says to his sons, who are helping him full service in the, in the church, what you're doing is not good. And then the little boy comes. And as I begin to read the third chapter, the second part of first verse, it says, And the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. And I think... That means that they were not really hearing the voice of God. Hearing the voice of God is very important to people as they advance and work for the Lord through their lifetime. It just does not come from the voice of Eli. It was the voice of God. And they were not hearing the voice anymore of God. It was, it was so rare. It was so precious. And then it says there was no open vision. And the Bible says, without a vision, a people perish. A church that loses the vision, a, a church that no longer hears the word, will, will just dry up and die. And oftentimes, we are at risk within our homes. And it's not just the temple. It can be you men are, are the high priests of your homes. It can be in your homes. And I take this personally. And as I look at this, and I'm older, and, you know... Uh, I'm going back to Guinea, and I'm the old geezer. I don't know why the Lord put me there, but the Lord put me there, and he has put me in charge, and, and I'm training pastors. We, do, we deal a lot with accountability uh, on integrity, on the things of the character of, of God's men and women they should be. And, and we're not there just a pastor. We're there to teach and, and uh, to do all the things besides the other work that we have to do just to live there. And the Lord shows me 
that there is Eli, and there are the ones, his sons. And I have some pastors, and you know, one of the problems overseas is that they are from tribes, and they have tribal rituals that are demonic in nature. They have roots in, in the occult, if you will, in the formal ways. They do sacrifices for dead people when they die. And there are some that have recognized that as believers now, they can no longer pass uh, into this type of a way of life, and they've stepped away from it. But there's a few that secretly they pay. In other words, they sponsor. And, you know, to deal with that kind of problem is not easy. You see, in my later years, I'm going back, and okay, I have five years. Ten years, I'll be 75. Okay, 20 years. But it would be so much easier just to, to pass through and do the good things. You know, build a few more churches. Uh, do, you know, plan and plant some more churches and work with the young people and have some more youth camps. And then I recognize that's the easy way when we don't deal with what's not pleasing to God. It was because of the sin within the camp that there was no hearing the word of God or the voice of God, and the vision had become no vision, no open vision. It even went and said in verse 3, Ere the lamp of the Lord went out in the temple. And then there's this little guy, and he's there, and, and he hears his voice, his name being called. You know the story, third time. Finally, Eli realizes he doesn't recognize God's voice. And how many times God speaks to us and we don't recognize his voice, maybe too, and, until it comes to our attention. And then the message is given to little Eli. Imagine a young boy. Why didn't God just go to Eli? I think he already had. But anyway, Eli wanted to know, and he said, threatened the little guy, if you don't tell me what God told you, might whatever comes supposed to come on me, might it come on you? So the little guy tells, and in verse 13, this is one of those verses. It says, for I have told him, that is that God has told Eli, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And I always thought... God would judge us because of the sin that we doeth, not the sin that we knoweth. And I don't want my last years in Guinea to be there, and the voice of God is rare, and there is no more open vision. I would hate, I love pastoring in America. I love people, you guys. Every time I'm around pastors, I, I just oh, love them. I love how you treat your pastors. And care for people. But in my last years, I don't want to just neglect the wrong that might be existing that would cause there to be a silence from God. And I say, God, in my last years, I will confront. Because it's not the sin that I doeth, but it was the sin that he knoweth, knoweth about and didn't do anything about. And how do you teach people? It went on. He didn't constrain them. How do you constrain a 33-year-old or a 28-year-old man? You start when they're kids. You don't beat your 33-year-old son because he's chosen sin. 
teaches us a lot of things. As you go through this, the Holy Spirit can touch us in our areas. And I know that I have to deal with stuff when I go back. I always do. But this has taught me, if we are going to win souls for Jesus, we've got to live lives that are pure and moral, given to God. And the call of God is just as strong and stronger now than it was before. And if you're a little older, let me encourage you. You might not be able to do what you used to be able to do. But you know what? Your faith is great faith. You've gone through the years of serving the Lord. The prayers of a righteous person availeth much. Your prayers are mighty in the hands of a warrior. We need your prayers. We need you to intervene. Your church needs you to be faithful. Even if your health can't take you or allow you to do what you used to do. It's okay. It's not how busy you are. But it's how you fight the spiritual warfares. And to be the mighty soldiers that God has called you to be. I call on you this day. Recognize we're not the only missionaries here. You are just as much missionaries as we are. You have a beautiful town. In that hotel where we stayed, plush. <laughs> King-size bed with a cushy, cushy bed. Never get that in Europe. Won't even get that in France. It's full of people waiting for the Super Bowl. Some with tattoos and... They were, they've been up all night. I can witness to that. They're waiting on this party. <laughs> they all need Jesus. Who's going to reach him? You want to double your church? Between now and the 28th of February? It's very simple. Each of you win one person to Jesus. One. Just one. Just one. And you say, well, where? How? Start by writing a list of ten names. Pray and ask God to give you ten different names of people you can pray for. Write them on a nice little firm piece of paper you carry with you. Ten times a day. Ten times a day. Take it out. Don't say, Lord, save all these people. One by none. Name the name before Jesus. And say, God, bring Fred to Jesus. Bring Marion to Jesus. Bring Hadiatu to Jesus. And as he expands it in your faith, write the additional names. Become a soul winner more than you've ever done before. Not because the pastor told you or a missionary told you. Because the Holy Spirit has called you to be a soul winner. 